The first scripture reading is Isaiah chapter 30, 64, verses 4 through 8. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you. You who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. But you were angry, and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. May God add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of this word. Our second scripture reading this morning, our gospel reading, comes to us from the gospel according to Mark in the 13th chapter. Read verses 1 through 13 and then 24 through 27. Let's continue to listen for the word of God for us here today. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. And Jesus asked him, See all these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew came and asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be, and what will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to speak to them. Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. As for yourselves, beware. For they will hand you over to councils and you will be beaten in the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them. And the good news must be proclaimed to all the nations. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you at that time. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And in those days after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the power in the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds 
from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word as well. Will you join me now in a moment of prayer? Let us pray. Gracious, loving God, we are indeed in your hands here this morning, clay to be molded according to your purpose. So send your spirit into this place to work upon us, to work in us a change, to make us more humble, to make us more thankful, to make us more powerful in the way of Christ. I pray that you would lend your spirit to my words, that they may be your living word for us here, and that the meditations of all of our hearts, as they are assembled here by your spirit, will be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. God, you are our rock and our refuge. Amen. It was a mild and muggy Tuesday evening in Atlanta in July 1988. And the Reverend Jesse Jackson was making a speech to the Democratic Party's National Convention. Jackson had won a significant number of the Democratic primaries that year, but in the end he'd lost the nomination for president to Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis. After briefly considering Jackson to be a running mate, which political analysts conjecture would likely have created a winning ticket for the Democrats in 1988. Dukakis instead chose Senator Lloyd Benson of Texas as his running mate. And so there was some question about what Jackson would say in his speech. There was some bitterness between he and Dukakis. But that night in Atlanta, Jackson's message was about seeking common ground and a mutual commitment to their candidate's success. But it was the closing moments of his speech that would ring out from that night to this morning. Four times Jackson repeated, keep hope alive. In those days, Jackson was perceived as something of a successor to the hard-won victories of the civil rights movement. But in the 1980s, backlash to those victories in the form of a culture war that depicted black America as a wash in crime and crack and welfare checks had stoked division in the nation. It had led to policies that suppressed the votes and economic opportunities for minorities. Jackson's speech to the convention that night had an air of desperation to it. Keep hope alive as though the hope of a previous era was sick, that it was on the verge even of death. Every generation has at some point wrestled with despair, the end of hope, hopelessness, that sense that whatever suffering one is experiencing in the present is insurmountable, that the hopes and dreams for the future that we have are cut off by obstacles and challenges that are right in front of us and that cannot be gotten over. And I say every generation has had to confront this because if, even if you look at the Bible, you see this again and again in the Old Testament and the New. Faithful people have often questioned and lamented and despaired, even as they have celebrated and prayed and praised Because every age has had its share of suffering and challenge. 
how then, how then do we keep hope alive? The theme for this year's Advent sermon series is Sing We Now of Christmas. And I hope you can hear in that a question mark. Sing we now of Christmas? This has a few different places. This question comes from a few different places. First, way back in July, as I was trying to be planful, I met with the deacons and I said to them, you know, this year, Christmas Eve, it falls on a Sunday. What are we going to do about that? We're going to have church twice? Should we perhaps start Advent a week earlier so we may have four Sundays before we get to Christmas Eve? We, we discussed this for some time, and, and I sort of looked around, and I, I consulted with other pastors as well. And it's, it's surprising and amazing in some ways how different churches are handling this uh, calendar liturgy problem. Uh, there are some churches that indeed have moved Advent up a week and began it a week ago. This is their second Sunday in Advent. Others, seeing an opening for innovation, said, why not six weeks of Advent instead of four and have extended their Advent backwards? This is the tradition in the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, for instance, so not necessarily innovative, but certainly not, not the norm. It's, a, it's an important reminder that these liturgical seasons that we observe in the church, they're a tradition, but a tradition that is malleable and subject to interpretation in every time and place. So that's one source of the question. Sing we now of Christmas? But, but even, more concerning, even more concerning is the idea that here in Advent, we would allow Christmas to impinge upon this season. There was a little video on TikTok that I saw back in November. It begins with this woman dressed in a Halloween costume, standing in front of a house decorated for Halloween. And it says, uh, the caption reads, my house on October 31st. And then she gives a little hop, and the scene changes. And she's wearing red and green. And the whole house is bedecked in Christmas decorations. And there's a huge Christmas tree behind her. And it says, my house on November 1st. It seems that Americans, and especially American businesses, want us to celebrate Christmas earlier and earlier every year. But in the church, in the church, we are to be disciplined in the way we mark time, not subject to the vagaries of culture. We know in church that Advent has its own distinctive tone and rhythm, its own music and lyrics, however unfamiliar those hymns may be to us. The disciplined implementation of this rhythm gives decency and order to our life together. To break from this tradition would be to invite chaos and unpredictability. One may wonder if allowing Christmas carols to be sung during Advent is not a mark of the encroachment of this culture of acceleration outside of the church back into the church, a bleeding back of the commercialization of the secular, self-centered version of Christmas into this holy spiritual sanctuary. Perhaps this indeed is a sign of the end of Christianity as we know it, a crisis of church culture, a liturgical disaster with chaotic results and no one to blame but ourselves or the pastor. <laughs> or perhaps you're thinking this is all a bit trivial. Who cares when Advent starts or what we sing? Aren't there other crises 
crises facing us in this hour? How can we sing of Christmas when there are wars raging in the world and children being killed from bombs rained down indiscriminately upon them? How can we sing of ransoming captive Israel when Israeli hostages have yet to be ransomed? There is our other more slow-moving crises at work, the slow-moving crisis of gun violence and suicide in the country, the rising cost of living, our increasingly accelerated, technologically sophisticated and confusing age, the threat of climate disaster and environmental collapse. And then there are the crises more close to home, holidays spent for the first time without a loved one, On Thanksgiving, it was always the tradition in our family that my grandmother would make the gravy. I'm not sure why this job was given to her. It's not actually that hard to make gravy, I figured out. But she had the knack for it. And this year, I wondered to my parents, who cooked the gravy? Because she wasn't there. Their diagnoses and worsening illnesses that tire out our bodies and hold us in perpetual pain. There's a sense that God has indeed, as the prophet said, turned God's face away from us. And that without the light of God's countenance, life moves in sad and somber shadows. But here's the thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ never promises us a life free of sorrow. In fact, Jesus himself declared just the opposite. Great edifices of tradition built up over generations that seem solid and rock hard. Those concrete expressions of God's presence in our midst, our liturgies, our traditions, Jesus says not one stone will be left upon another. It's not a threat. It's a promise. Jesus says that fear will be stoked. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be fears of newcomers, fears of famine, that the food we eat and the medicine we take isn't safe, fears that the true spirit of Christmas and the true meaning of the gospel will be besieged and persecuted. And those fears continue to be stoked today. And while some of it is misinformation, some of those fears are real and warranted. And all of it, Jesus says, is to be expected and anticipated, not avoided. Racial animosity, national rivalry, family discord, estrangement and bitterness, all of these have their way of rearing up around what is supposed to be the most celebratory of tables. It's all within the clear-eyed vision of the gospel of Jesus, though. All of that darkness, all of that crisis, all of that chaos, Jesus sees it and he names it, but then he gives us this encouragement. Keep hope alive. For evil times are not the end times. This is a mistake people often make when they speak or, or, or hear about apocalypse. This idea that the end times are the times of conflict and despair. Those are not the end times. Those come before the end times. But the end times are beyond suffering. They're on the other side of it. And we can't see that, though, if we don't keep hope alive. 
My longtime mentor and friend, Dr. John Lysaker, recently published a book in which he includes an essay about hope. At a very basic level, he asserts that hope is a trope of the possible. It's a way of recognizing in, in the present moment that there are possibilities beyond it in the future. He says they sparkle in the moments. He says hope is bound to despair in the same way struggle and surrender are bound together. But he also says hope's future is not without a past. What might prove possible does so not just against but through what has been. Hope enables movement away and into and away again from the present moment. Under the shadowy, blurred vision of suffering, he says, hope intensifies scenes of possibilities, adding salience to various dimensions that are eclipsed by despair or obscured by stoic detachment. In other words, hope isn't about grinning and bearing it. Nor does hope simply dream about a better future disconnected from a dismal present, as though the present and future were not connected in the same timeline. To coin a phrase, the future is now in the eyes of hope. And so that is why we sing of Christmas now. As far back as the ninth century, Christians have intoned prayers in the Advent season to claim the hope of Jesus Christ for the world. The so-called O antiphons were responsive prayers, not unlike our call to worship or the liturgy we did with the Advent wreath lighting here today. Antiphons were sung by monks who would divide into two choruses, each singing a part and then the other would respond in kind. And these ancient O antiphons were used to frame the readings of the prophets and the psalms leading up to Christmas, the seven days before. In each of the antiphons, Christ's name is offered. Seven different names. Wisdom of the Most High, leader of the house of Israel, root of Jesse's stem, key of David, radiant dawn, king of all the nations, Emmanuel. These Advent antiphons are the backbone of the Christmas carol that we know today as O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. The Reverend John Neal, who was a 19th century British composer and uh, translator of hymns, he rendered those ancient Latin prayers into the English seven verses of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Interestingly enough, Neal uh, translated a number of other familiar hymns, including All Glory, Laud, and Honor, Of the Father's Love Begotten, and Good King Wenceslas. But then he had to choose a tune to marry his words to. And the tune has a rather interesting origin story. Uh, Dr. Mary Berry, which is the perfect name for someone in a Christmas story. <laughs> Dr. Mary Berry uh, was, a, was an abbotess in England uh, and also a, a historian. And she discovered in the National Library of Paris about a century after Neil's death, a 15th century prayer book that had been prepared for an order of Franciscan nuns. And there in that prayer book, she found the tune for O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It was written 
uh, in two parts on two separate pages, meant to be held between two nuns as they walked in a procession. And it wasn't just an Advent procession, though. The words were the words of the funeral procession. If you've always had a sneaking suspicion that O Come, O Come, Emmanuel sounds like a dirge, that's because it is. It is literally the tune of a funeral march. In its antiphonal character, though, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel holds hope and despair tightly together. And as a processional, it sets us moving, processing forward in the Advent season with hope, moving at once towards the light and then back towards the shadows and then again towards the light. We sing of Christmas now because because we can't separate hope from despair. And we can't wait and sit still and be hoping. Hope is alive even now. Hope is in motion. And that hope is that the evil times are not the end times. Evil times have come before, but they did not bring the promises of God to an end. Evil times have come before, but God was born in the midst of such times. Evil times have come before, even coming for the Son of God. But he who is our hope rose again from the grave and walked again. He came and he walked beside his disciples who were blinded by their grief. And he comforted them with good news of great joy. As the risen Christ walked on that road to Emmaus, he opened the Gospels to them and showed them that the promises of God were true and that indeed they had been fulfilled. And at first the disciples didn't understand, but they knew, they felt something. It says their hearts burned within them at his words. It was only when they sat at table and he broke the bread and they took it and ate, that their eyes were opened. And they saw who he was and what he is. Hope alive.